Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we analyse the fallout from the Wagner Group's aborted march on Moscow, bring you the latest from the front lines, and Dom Nichols interviews Alice Edwards, the UN Special Rapporteur on torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 26th of June, one year and 122 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor, Dominic Nichols, foreign correspondent James Kilner, and Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva. I started by asking Dom for the latest updates from Ukraine. So over the weekend, more airstrikes on Kyiv and across the country. So overnight, Friday, Saturday... A number of cruise missiles and drones fired at Kyiv. Ukraine's uh, air defences said they shot down 41 of 51 cruise missiles, as well as a number of drones, but obviously some did get through and there were casualties there, killed and injured. Um, elsewhere, the uh, Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, Hannah Malia, she's been speaking this morning. She said that Kyiv's forces have retaken a town called Rivnopil. Now, this is in Donetsk Oblast. There are two towns called uh, Rivnopil in, in Donetsk. So just be careful, you'll, you'll see references to this. One of them is 15 k's about southeast of Velika Novosilka, that central thrust that Ukraine have been pushing on for their counteroffensive. That Rivnopil is about only 50 k's north of Mariupol. Okay, now that's about 15 k's southeast of where we thought Ukraine had advanced to before. That area where we saw two weeks ago the Leopard, Tanks and Bradley Infantry fighting vehicle have been knocked out. Rivnopil, that one, is about 15k south of there. So that that looks quite startling. However, I think the liberated Rivnopil town is slightly further to the northwest. I think this is about 5k's outside of Velika Novosilko on the south, southwest of there. So going in the right direction, but it's not, not as uh, significant and doesn't suggest a, a sudden breakthrough. So just be careful as you see reports about that. There's two two towns with the same name very, very close to each other. 
but one that might indicate you might think that they've got much further down south into into Russia's defences. I don't think that's the case. Separately, British Defence Intelligence this morning saying that Ukraine has gained impetus uh, in its assault around Bakhmut, so in the east of the Donbass. They're saying a multi-brigade operation has made progress on both the northern and southern flanks of the city, which we know they've been pressing out for some time. So the British MOD said that there's been little evidence that Russia maintains any significant operational level reserves in the area. As we've said before, you've got to have reserves for a rainy day to, to plug gaps or to exploit your own successes. So the fact that they haven't British intelligence assessment is that there's nothing of an operational level, as in much bigger than than just mere tactics. So you're talking whole region rather than small individual towns. That's quite significant. Now, equally significant would be, is their reference to multi-brigade operations? So multi-brigade, we're probably talking 10,000-ish troops. There's going to be a lot of moving parts in there. Coordination and logistic requirements will be significant for a force of that size. And that's before you even consider the fighting most wars, remember, are not lightning strikes, but they're going to be slow grinds, and it's who can stay in the fight the longest that's often the critical factor. That comes down to logistics, both having the supplies, hence Ukraine's continued strikes against Russian supply locations, ammo dumps and so on, but also planning the safe and efficient distribution of those supplies. So sound planning and sustainment of a multi-brigade operation on the move, in the advance, in the attack, and not just in a static defence, is a very big task. And if Ukraine can do that and is showing the ability to do that, that is significant. Now let's move on to the, the news of, uh, or in, re- in response to Saturday's extraordinary events. I don't know, coup or mutiny, put your vote in there. I don't think necessarily think it is a coup that suggests it's come from inside the, the system and, and Wagner isn't that. They're not part of the, they make great hay of being that saying they're not part of the mainstream. So I'm more for mutiny, mutiny with a bounty given the number of blokes we saw in cafes. But anyway, let's have a chat about what, what's happened since then. So this morning, Russian Defence Ministry has posted a video showing Sergei Shoigu, the defense, Russia's Defence Minister, uh, purportedly visiting a a headquarters location somewhere in Ukraine, supposedly from the Western group of forces fighting in Ukraine. Um, so sorry, not necessarily in Ukraine, but but from the Western group of forces that are conducting operations and fighting the war in Ukraine. Now, there's no idea, we have no idea when this film was made. There have been suggestions from prominent Russian military blogger community that, that the film was on Friday. And if you look at the footage, you'll see it all on social media. If you look at the footage, you'll see the digital watch of General Yevgeny uh, Nikiforov, who is the commander of the Western Military District. He's the guy briefing, sure you. His watch is blurred. Not, not, not a lot of other stuff. The maps are, but not a lot of other stuff is blurred. Um, and maybe that's because it's a digital watch. It shows the date. We don't really know. That bit isn't really important. The important bit is that it's out there. This is a clear show of of support from Putin to Shoigu, um, underlining again that Shoigu is still inside the camp and Prigozhin, who still hasn't been seen since Saturday evening, he's on the outside. Um, Elsewhere in Moscow, they've lifted the anti-terrorist security regime they put in on on Saturday. Um, There are reports, supposedly from UK security sources, that Russian intelligence services threatened to harm the families of Wagner leaders, and that led to Prigozhin calling off his advance on Moscow. But there's no further detail as to who those sources are, so I think we should file that under plausible, but who really knows? There's no sign Prigozhin's in Belarus. We haven't seen him, seen of him, heard from him since Saturday evening when he was uh, spirited out of Rostov after the apparent deal. 
But today, Russia's Commerçant newspaper, not strictly state-controlled, but owned by Alicia Omanov, who's an oligarch close to the Kremlin, so it's not entirely independent, shall we say. Um, but they're reporting an unidentified source that says Prigozhin remains under investigation by the FSB for the, as they're calling it, the mutiny on Saturday. This is after the news on Saturday was that all charges have been dropped. Now, that reporting, that that those charges still stand, that has since been picked up and supported by the state-run RIA Novosti uh, media outlet. As for Putin, there were suggestions he had flown to St. Petersburg on Saturday as the events unfolded. Kremlin officials said on Sunday night that he was still in Moscow and that he'd never left. But they also said he did not appear on television to reassure Russians. Um, instead, the Kremlin-controlled channels put out a broadcast of a really soft interview that he'd filmed earlier in the week when he was talking about weapons production and all the rest of it. And then this morning, there's film from the Kremlin of Putin addressing a youth forum dubbed the Engineers of the Future, where he's been praising companies for ensuring the stable operation of the country's industry in the face of severe external challenges. He might have added internal challenges as well there, but there's no mention of Saturday's events. Um, I, I think we'll probably see more footage of him soon. What, I doubt we'll ever be able to tell where that was filmed or when, um, but we should expect more footage of him sort of showing ops normal, nothing to see here. He's still in charge, um, despite, as I'm sure we'll come on to talk about uh, in a short while, the, the, the huge dent to his reputation for, for stability and security. Thanks very much, Dom. The last podcast we recorded, we did on Saturday, is a special edition considering the events in Russia, of the completely unprecedented events in Russia. We published the podcast at around 5pm, I think, UK time. And about an hour later, it appeared that the coup or the mutiny or whatever we want to call it was off. James Kilner, can you talk us through what happened after we came off air over the weekend? Yeah, this uh, this story just ran and ran and ran and took uh, multiple different twists and turns. I was covering it from Friday evening all the way through to last night. So after our podcast on Saturday, I think we left it with Wagner soldiers speeding towards Moscow, past Voronezh, and uh, getting up to within about 120 miles of the Russian capital, I think. And suddenly it was announced uh, on, on Telegram, Pogorzhin announced that he'd done a deal and he was calling back his fighters, etc., and then the, 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 the terms of the deal came out. Apparently, this was a rub stamp by Lukashenko, the um, Belarusian president. And the deal was Grozhin would call off his fighters and he'd move into exile into Belarus, as Storm just says. And also, in return, he also ensured the independence of his Wagner uh, mercenary outfit from the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense, which was something that was coming up and he was really, really uh, worried about. And then overnight, I, mean, I need to press this point hard. It, it really, this convoy of Wagner mercenaries bowling towards uh, Moscow really stopped dead. And they literally stopped and turned around and drove back to Rostov. I mean, just like that. And then in Rostov itself, which is this city of about a million people uh, in southern Russia, you know, only about two hours drive from Ukraine, from um, occupied parts of Ukraine, you had this extraordinary scenes that evening of people of, of ordinary Russians coming out and thanking Wagner soldiers for uh, showing up the Kremlin etc uh, waving Wagner flags uh, all this sort of thing uh, and and then you, you saw the Wagner soldiers withdraw from the city and uh, Pogrodzian also withdraws with them there's a, the last photo of him he's in the back of a car driving away 
Um, typically, because he's a showman, he's the window down so people can see his face and he lets people take, take, take selfies. He's, he's a very media savvy chap. But um, uh, these ordinary Russians were, were, were really cheering the Wagner fighters. And then when the regular Russian policemen moved back into the city, these are meant to be pro Kremlin law policemen, they were booed. So you have this incredible scene which really summed up the chaos of rebel fighters being cheered and the regular security services being booed. The next day, uh, Sunday, Russian soldiers dismantled their various checkpoints uh, around Moscow. There was a big cleanup operation in Rostov. It was really sort of a, a, a day for consolidation. Uh, meanwhile, there was nothing of any significance from the from the Kremlin. They were just silence. Um, you may, I, well, I, I was on, on GT and I was kind of expecting Putin to pop up and say something. He didn't and he still hasn't. And meanwhile, we're also waiting for Prigozhin to say something significant. He just sent a one one message or his, his press guy sent one message saying he didn't have very good uh, cell phone reception at the moment, but he'd be in touch when he did. That could really mean anything. And now we find out, um, as Dom has, has said via Commissant, that it sounds like the FSB and the Kremlin have changed their mind on giving Grozhin um, immunity from, from prosecution and they may, may be double-crossing him. Commissant's generally right. I'd take it, you know, it's, it's a well-sourced newspaper. And if that's uh, what they're reporting, um, I'd run with it. So we have a scenario at the moment where the two main protagonists of this extraordinary 48, 72 hours are missing in action. Putin has still not turned up, and Prigozhin uh, was last seen leaving a car smiling from Rostov. Remains to be seen where the story goes next. Thanks very much, James. Natalia Vasilieva, you've also been following the story through the weekend. Would you like to just talk a little bit about some of the unanswered questions and some of the questions we should be posing? I mean, James has, I think, already framed some of them, but what strikes you? Yeah, I think James is exactly on point um, about Prigozhin and his whereabouts. The one thing we know about his whereabouts is Putin's press secretary's promise that Prigozhin will, quote, leave for Belarus. Neither, um, we haven't heard it from Prigozhin himself. We're talking about this person who has been sending video updates, audio messages in those past months, like several of them, five, six a day. He went completely silent on Saturday night. He said he was retreating. He was pulling back his forces and they were standing down essentially, but he never mentioned anything about himself. He never confirmed he was going to Belarus. Belarus is a small country. Obviously, the state it is now, it's a um, dictatorship, essentially. There is no independent media to speak of. But uh, despite the fact, throughout the war, we have seen a lot of um, helpful reporting from Belarus where opposition activists, exiled opposition activists or exiled uh, independent media would still somehow get reporting out of the country on on, on various things. And uh, we haven't seen, and I haven't seen any of my Belarusian sources reporting anything. No one has cited Prigozhin. He wasn't spotted in a, a restaurant in Minsk. His plane wasn't seen anywhere or, or his motorcade. So uh, we need to wait and see what, what happens. So that obviously there's a big unknown of what happens to him. Also, his silence is actually something that the Kremlin might be seeking. And this announcement that the charges have not been dropped, uh, it could be a tactic to serve as a deterrent for him to stay silent because he grew very much in prominence. Um, He was everywhere. And I'd imagine that the Kremlin would very much fear that he would sort of try to 
fan of the flames of mutiny or whatever from um, from abroad. This this, this um, fear is pretty much there. Natalia, can I ask, over the last few days, what have you made of the coverage from Russian state media? And also a slightly different question. What do you make of Putin's silence? I mean, Dom has reported just now, you know, he, he sort of talked a little bit and about something completely different and hasn't mentioned this mutiny. What's your read of that? Yeah, you can see that pretty much everyone in the Russian establishment and the Russian state media were very much shocked and confused. And this shock obviously was very hard to conceal. You basically could, could read it on people's faces. You could read it on the faces of TV anchors or members of, of the cabinet. Just uh, a couple of hours ago, we saw the Russian prime minister for the first time since the mutiny. We saw his cabinet and a lot of the ministers looked visibly distressed. They They had... Dark circles underneath their eyes. I'm, I'm not someone who would like to delve very deep into criminology and make swiping generalizations about people's looks. But that group of people generally looked very confused and I would say much more confused and emotionally shaken than I've seen them before. In terms of state media, yeah, I mean, I would say on Saturday, there was so much con- confusion that um, they were caught off guard. And uh, it's important to note that all of those years, state media has been a very much choreographed affair. The so-called journalists and um, TV reporters have had have re- have been receiving detailed briefs of, of briefs of what to cover, how to cover. So um, they were kind of lost. You know, they they kept running uh, Putin's bulletin, Putin's statement, condemning the mutiny. Uh, but also there was some, I would say, refreshing report from 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 the ground. I just saw this um, state media reporter from Rostov who genuinely, you know, tried to 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 um, do vox pops in the streets, ask people what they think, even though she was very careful about you know speaking to the Wagner soldiers or trying to engage with them. So that confusion was very much in the plain sight. And obviously it doesn't make anyone uh, more confident that we still haven't seen Putin since that statement. Uh, Dom, I think, has just mentioned that video address that Putin made. I can see it on the Kremlin's website. He's just he's sitting in his office. It's something that could have been recorded at any time. So there's no indication that it was filmed after the mutiny. So there's basically, we haven't seen any reaction from Putin at all to how it ended. We haven't heard from him about his thoughts, what's going to happen to those troops. I mean, it's all very well for his spokesman to say that, you know, the the fighters um, have agreed to lay down arms. They will dutifully report to the defense ministry. They will join their ranks. But I think it's it's one of the biggest unknown. If we talk, if we've been talking about um, those thousands of men, a lot of them are quite unruly, uh, with uh, sort of convicts who should be serving time in jail. Like what happens to them now? Who is organizing their men? Those men are they going to be? Are some of them going to be put put back to prison? Um, who is going to be in charge of that? That's that's one of the biggest unanswered questions right now. Thank you very much, Natalia. Now, we've sort of broken up this podcast slightly to give you the updates, the news as we know it. Let's move slightly into some interpretation of what we think may have happened. James, you've been looking at this and thinking about what's going on behind the scenes and why the extraordinary events of the last few days unfolded as they did. What's your take? So, and this has to be slightly speculative, David, because obviously the information flow is limited and um, often, often broken up. The the prevailing narrative throughout, you know, when when all this news is breaking, it's, it's in the newsroom, as as you can imagine. You know, I'm in Tbilisi and working three hours ahead uh, of my colleagues in London. But in the middle of such a massive breaking news story, when things are happening so quickly, the 
prevailing feeling at the time was that the Gorozhin was somehow looking to grab power actually in the Kremlin itself. Now, I think that's been adjusted a bit, and 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 this is my sort of working hypothesis, really, uh, that I think this was an accidental coup by Prigozhin. I think it was a coup because I th- I, I regard him as a sort of foot soldier of the Kremlin. You know, he's he's commander of the Kremlin's military unit, but I think it was an accidental coup. So I, I think there's a couple of really important things to keep reminding ourselves about. First thing is that Prigozhin hates absolutely hates the Russian Ministry of Defence, the Defence Minister Shoigu, and the uh, head of the General Staff, uh, Gerasimov. And he has been on record many, many, multiple times saying that he wants to get them sacked, etc., etc. Uh, he hates it, blah, blah, blah. On June the 10th, so uh, just just under two weeks before he, he launched his, his coup, all mercenaries in Russia were told that they were going to have to sign uh, a document, a, a contract to to subvert themselves to the Ministry of Defence. Um, this is, this was an order directly from the Kremlin. So on June the tenth, Wagner and his uh, Prigozhin and his Vargas fighters are told that uh, the game's up. You're going to lose your independence, and you're going to have to become essentially Russian soldiers. And this was meant to be happening by July the first. So uh, you got a, you had a scenario at the end of last week where. Uh, the, the Wagner soldier in Prigozhin had been sort of withdrawn from the Bakhmut uh, fighting area about three weeks, three and a half weeks earlier, and they'd been kicking their heels in their camps in Ukraine. Um, and this deadline for signing contracts to, to join the, uh, to subvert themselves to the, to the Russian army is coming up. Prigozhin cannot handle this concept. This is the, sort of the nightmare scenario for him. So he decides to roll the dice. He's a big gambler, risk taker. Roll the dice, and he needs a big publicity stunt to grab people's attention to show that Wagner is a strong force and he's been taken more seriously and won't bend the knee to the Russian army. I.e., I, something that is going to preserve his independence and the independence of uh, his fighting force, the force that he claims to, to love and, and really care for. And so they come up, I think, they come up with this crazy idea to mount a rebellion, a march, march of justice as he put it in his initial telegram message. And Prigozhin kept making the point that his rebellion was not against the Kremlin, it was against the Ministry of Defence, the Russian Ministry of Defence. Now, you, you can sort of split hairs a bit on, on what the difference is. You know, reports the Kremlin is part of the government, all that, all that sort of thing. But Prigozhin was very careful, and he's been very careful throughout all these rants that he's been putting on, in, in, on, on um, Telegram, etc., not to directly criticise Putin uh, and the Kremlin. After all, he does owe Putin his entire sort of wealth and patronage. Putin's made him into the man he is. He has been Putin's ever-loyal fixer, um, chef, caterer, manipulator of uh, the US presidential election in 2016, and and more recently, mercenary warlord uh, leader, etc. So we had a scenario where... Late on Friday evening, Prigozhin fires the starting gun for this rebellion or coup, etc., and his soldiers move very easily, surprisingly easy, worryingly easy, across into Russia. And then within a few hours, they also surprisingly easy, easily, worryingly easily capture Rostov, a city of one million people, where the Russian army has one of its, its main headquarters for, for directing its operations in Ukraine. And suddenly, you've got this army of mercenaries have just essentially walked over the border or driven over the border, driven up to Rostov, and now they've captured the city. And then suddenly they're also 
driving up the road towards Moscow. And then Putin makes his his speech, this, this very, very hard speech where he called Prigozhin a traitor, he needs to be brutally punished, that sort of thing. He compares the scenario to 1917, the year of two revolutions in Russia. I watched it live, I reported it for the Telegraph Live. It was a very, very hard, very sort of clearing speech from, from, from Putin. It was an extraordinary speech. It was, it was humiliating, but it was also, there was a very hard edge, as you can imagine, and that, that was the last we saw Putin. And I think that speech and the fact that they hadn't met any proper resistance so far in, in their rebellion really scared Prigozhin. And maybe he'd fall into some sort of trap because I think he'd, he'd anticipated a sort of scenario, and, and this is just hypothetical, where there would be a standoff somewhere in the Rostov region outside Rostov or on the border, and it would require Putin to intervene or a very senior Kremlin official to intervene and negotiate some sort of peace and during those negotiations, he would he would get what he wanted. Instead, suddenly, his his fighters are 120 miles from, from Moscow. And it looks like they're going to end up entering Moscow and having some sort of fight for the Kremlin, which was is a totally crazy concept and not one that I do not think that he, he anticipated that being in that scenario. And I do not think that he wanted to be in that scenario. And it's at this point... Shortly after uh, Putin's speech, a few hours after Putin's speech, that negotiations start happening. And there's been some very good reporting from um, some of the Russian opposition news websites um, who have got who are quite well sourced inside the Kremlin, etc., um, and, and, and Russian uh, officials, who say that it was, it was at this point that um, Prigozhin picked up the phone, tried to get through to Putin, his, his, his old mate, couldn't get through to him, so he uh, got through to some other officials, and then this deal was done. Uh, for him to allow him to move in uh, to Belarus and to basically stop, you know, pull a sudden stop to this uh, this this drive to Moscow, which which, which didn't suit anyone. And Prigozhin needed someone like Lukashenko's name on this um, peace deal to authenticate it, and that's where we are. I think essentially Prigozhin was an accidental coup leader, and at the end of this, his adventurism. We have two outcomes which are terrible for him. He's forced into exile in Belarus, a boring, frustrating exile, which completely sidelines him. And he's accidentally, I think, humiliated his patron. The big winners in this are people who hated Prigozhin and who really hated his insider uh, friendship, relationship with Putin that was keeping him in the public, was giving him all his power. That relationship, that friendship has now been broken uh, forever. And I think the people who, the, the, the Russian agencies and the Russian elite who, who hated that are the big winners. Well, thank you very much, James. And as you said, with all the caveats of information flow and, you know, it's only been a few days since these events. I think that's a really, really interesting read of, of what's happened. Um, Natalia and Dom, do you want to add anything to that? Natalia Vasilieva. Yeah, I just wanted to make a few points about the timeline here and why uh, Prigozhin may have stopped. We have been talking about it a lot, actually. You know, we've been discussing Prigozhin's rights to power. There was speculation of him vying for office, uh, possibly looking for an official post, trying to win allies. But at the end of the day, and we could see it as early as Saturday morning, he did not have any political allies. There was not a single cabinet minister, there was not a single governor who would openly 
support him or who would issue a statement that would be neutral, bordering on support. Pretty much everyone was vocal in in, um, in favor of the Kremlin from the start, which I think was one of the main points that Prigozhin felt that you know he had to turn back those marching troops on on the on the Kremlin because he just didn't didn't have the political support that he needed. And again, all of the all of those months we saw Prigozhin's uh, stunning rise to power, and there was this idea that this man is really dangerous because he has all of those troops. I mean, he's he's the one who has guys with weapons, and if you have guys with weapons, maybe, you know, you don't need all of those old men in black suits. And it turned out that it was actually one of the things that made the mutiny essentially fail, that he, he just felt that there would be no political backing if he would get anywhere close to Moscow. And, you know, if the troops would get anywhere close to Moscow, they would be basically decimated by the few, but, you know, existing Russian troops that would be defending um, the Russian capital. Thank you, Natalia. Thank you, James. Dom, anything to add to that? Any thoughts? Yeah, I have to say, I, James is right. Prigozhin is Putin's ever loyal fixer, or was anyway. I think I think he and we were surprised by how strong uh, Putin, when he did make a, a, a speech on Saturday morning, some of the language he used. I mean, there's no coming back from that. That relationship is over between Prigozhin and Putin. Um, I would just say that I think this shows one of the effects of the pressure on Bakhmut that's been applied to Bakhmut in the last few last few months. That was always the fault line. As we said, you've got Wagner in there, you've got the, the Russian, the mainstream Russian MOD uh, forces, as weak as they are, but as in regular forces backed up with conscripts and what have you. You also had the local militia, Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republic, whoever's floating around at the time. So there were a lot of fault lines there. We saw that playing out with Prigozhin's increasingly vocal rants and we were wondering for a long time why why Ukraine was still committing huge blood and treasure in that area we thought it was mainly to to work on the relative strengths so that, uh, that so that Russia was worn down and not able to use the forces elsewhere but we were saying at the time that we think this, this there's a fault line there there are lots of fault lines between these different groups and I think this just shows one of the outcomes of it this is absolutely lit a flame under that under these political machinations and so i think it's just one if you look you look for weakness in your enemy and then you just keep applying pressure and something will eventually give and i think that's what we saw on saturday but i just don't get the whole belarus thing i don't get him going off into exile um, i don't think this is some super duper double super secret bluff whereby putin now has forces in belarus to come into the north i think ukraine already defending that flank and it's heavily forested anyway it's very hard to get through there but they're they're alive to that they been living with that they've got Lukashenko up there I mean he's he's not exactly a, a sort of fly-by-night sort of Putin fanboy he's he's there for the for the distance so Putin didn't need to put someone else in there to shore that flank up I don't think I also can't see that that Prigozhin's happy to go off into retirement I mean he's first and foremost a businessman you know he's been doing cosplay soldiering for the last year or so but actually the business model is security for cash around the, the rest of the world predominantly Africa for mineral deposits and gold mines and so on and so forth. So that's made him a lot of money, Wagner a lot of money, it's made Putin a lot of money and other people round and about. But also what it's done is it's shored up some fairly dodgy regimes, but all of whom have one vote in the UN General Assembly. So Russia's been very happy for the Wagner business model to, to roll out. So I just can't see why that would be the end of it. Trying to, The MOD, Russian MOD trying to roll Wagner into their constructs, get rid of Prigozhin. I mean, you're properly killing the golden goose. So I just, I just don't see it. I don't think it was, as I say, all a plan, but equally it doesn't make any, 
any sense at all for Russia to, or for Putin to, to utterly write off Wagner um, at the moment. So yeah, a lot of I don't knows in there, I'm afraid, but hopefully we'll work our way through it in the next few weeks. Thank you, Dom. Before we go to Dom, just for the final sort of diplomatic and political updates, any final thoughts uh, on this from James or Natalia? Just to add really quickly on to what Dom just said, I think Putin had to come down on on, on one side or the other, the Russian Ministry of Defence or Wagner, uh, and he came down on the side of of Russian Ministry of Defence, and that's why Wagner had to be taken out. Lukashenko and the Belarus angle were in there because, according to Medusa and other uh, opposition Russian websites, Prigrozhin insisted on Lukashenko's name being on, on the peace deal, though Lukashenko wasn't actually involved, apparently, um, because of, of, of some sort of protection. Uh, maybe that hasn't even worked, according to the Commonsense reporting. So I think Lukashenko is like the accidental peacemaker here, and Belarus is the accidental sort of place of exile. Moving on to some final thoughts, one of the analysts I spoke to yesterday um, around you know, what happens next, is he was saying that with Putin sort of having been made to look humiliated or weak, he would expect a very serious response from Putin show of strength from the sort of mafia boss style show of strength and um, yeah, he flagged that up as, as something to be generally very worried about. Anything final from you Natalia or shall we go back to Dom? I could just like latch on um, to what James was saying just now. I mean it looks like Putin's victory but obviously it's a pyrrhic victory because it showed how vulnerable the Kremlin is. It shows that if you have a group of people and they have enough weapons and uh, um Vehicles, they can just uh, hit the road and uh, drive towards Moscow and um, cover something like 700 kilometers in the space of, what, 24 hours. And they were 200 kilometers away from Moscow. And the best that authorities in some regions could do, and I have this particular case in mind in Lipetsk, where local authorities were apparently so desperate, they called in diggers to smash up a motorway to stop the onslaught of the Wagner, obviously seeing that there's no help from the military coming in. So that's, that's huge damaging and it's, it exposed uh, the vulnerabilities of the regime. So that's not the end of the story for sure. Well, thank you, Natalia and James. Dom Nichols, um, some final diplomatic and political updates from you. Sure. So whizzing around the world. So on the diplomatic front, we've got Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State. He said that Putin um, had to defend Moscow against a mercenary of his own making. We see cracks emerging from NATO. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General, he said events demonstrate Moscow committed a strategic mistake by waging war on Ukraine. He's in Vilnius, capital of Lithuania, no doubt putting the finishing touches to next month's NATO conference. He was speaking to journalists. He said the events over the weekend are an internal Russian matter and yet another demonstration of the big strategic mistake that Putin made with his illegal annexation of Crimea and the war against Ukraine. As Russia continues its assault, it is even more important to continue our support to Ukraine. And then from the EU, got Josip Borrell, who's the EU foreign policy chief. He said, what's happened during this weekend shows that the war against Ukraine is cracking Russian power and affecting its political systems. Certainly, it's not a good thing to see that a nuclear power like Russia can go into a phase of instability. It's also something that has to be taken into account. The most important conclusion is that the war against Ukraine launched by Putin and the monster that Putin created with Wagner, the monster is biting him. The monster is acting against its creator. The political system is showing the fragilities and the military power 
is cracking. There's some reaction from inside Russia. I, tw- I retweeted about an hour ago. Steve Rosenberg, who's the BBC's Russia editor, he's been looking at the papers in Russia. And I think they've been about as critical as they're able to go. So one of the headlines said, Prigozhin will go, but the problems remain. Russia displayed its vulnerability to the whole world and to itself. Other comment, the most terrifying scenario was averted, an armed conflict at home, a full-scale split in the security agencies, battles on city streets, including Moscow. I mean, bearing in mind... Putin's power base is the ability to project this image that he's in control, that he's keeping the barbarians from the gates and so on and so forth. Comments like this in the Russian press, I think, are quite unusual and will be noticed. One paper noted that the legal system showed, once again, it could be so flexible up to the point of not existing. Interesting comment. That is this so-called Wagner get away with it, Prigozhin gets away with it. Apparently 13, allegedly 13 Russian service personnel were killed. Uh, we think about five or six aircraft, five helicopters, one uh, one fixed-wing plane shot down. So, you know, there, there was blood spill here. Uh, however, Steve Rosenberg also notes that the ultra-pro-Kremlin Komsomolska Pravda newspaper said Saturday's events didn't weaken our country, they strengthened it. Who saved Russia and stopped Prigozhin's convoy? President Putin. He was the one who, in reality, brought this story to a safe conclusion. Russia has boosted its prestige, showing it can cope with any crises, external and internal. And then as Steve Riley notes, that is definitely under the banner of putting a positive spin on things. So international opinion, that's coming out through the rest of the day. We'd be interested to see how that how that goes. But the big thing is, in some sort of global where's Wally, you know, where's old Yevgeny? Well, thank you, Dom, Natalia and James. Any final thoughts from any of you before we wrap today up? Yeah, if I may, so I just jump straight back in there. But so today uh, we've got the Land Warfare Conference, the British Army's Land Warfare Conference. That's starting today in London. General Sir Patrick Sanders, who's the chief of the general staff, the head of the army, he opened the conference saying in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, he said, NATO is stronger, Russia is temporarily weaker, and Ukrainian bravery and sacrifice is buying us time, time to modernise, time to train ourselves. But for every extra month that we are privileged to gain, there is a terrible cost, one that we can never take for granted, nor that we can irresponsibly squander. We must do more. We owe it to Ukraine. So strong words there from, from CGS, and that conference is still ongoing today. Thank you to Natalia and James. Last week, Dom spoke to Alice Edwards, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. Here's their conversation. Dr Alice Edwards, delighted you could join us here on Ukraine The Latest. You are the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture and Other Cruel, Inhuman or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. I wonder if you could introduce your role and the scope of your work, please. Thanks, Dominic. Really pleased to be on the podcast. I was appointed in August 2022. So in a way, it's uh, nearly coming up to a year. I'm the seventh special rapporteur on torture and the first woman to take up the role. It's a one of the longest standing UN independent experts. Independent means that I'm free and I should speak my mind and my views without fear or favor from any government or any other actor. I don't work for the United Nations, so I am an independent expert, but was appointed by the states that make up the Human Rights Council as a expert to help them in their work. So there are three main functions of a special rapporteur, but one thing I would like to highlight is essentially this role is to be the global watchdog on incidents of torture, kind of a 
an alarm system, uh, as you may describe it, to kind of keep states to account and to raise the alarm bell when things look like they are going uh, awry. So the three main functions, uh, one is to receive and or to seek information about incidents or patterns of torture or other ill treatment, and with that information to write to governments asserting that information and seeking their replies to that. I'm also able, obviously, to meet in person or over the phone with various and different governments. And the second function is to carry out country visits, so essentially fact-finding visits uh, to different countries. And the third is to keep the Human Rights Council and the General Assembly informed of global developments around torture by presenting a report to each of those bodies on an annual basis. Thanks. Now, we're speaking for two reasons. Firstly, because Monday is the International Day in Support of Victims of Torture, but also because of some recent work you've done, which I incorrectly referred to as a report, but actually I think the correct terminology is an allegation letter, albeit a very long letter, that you have presented to or sent to the Russian government over activity in Ukraine. Is that correct? And can you talk us through the product, please? Yeah, so essentially as part of my role, victims and survivors, their lawyers or their advocates are able to write and present evidence of which we try to do a triangulation and a verification to a certain extent, although I do not claim to be presenting the the full truth of, of the picture in those allegation letters. That information is compiled and reviewed and sent to the government for response. The government has 60 days in which to respond, and they should do that in writing for very serious cases. And of course, most cases of torture are serious, of course, but for cases that are involving a large number of victims, I do make it a policy to try to reach out to the government to have a face-to-face sit-down with the permanent mission in Geneva and to make it known that I'm following up closely and I really want a response. And can you talk us through, as far as you're able to, the case studies and specifics of the allegations you've made against Russia? Yeah, so the information I have received is quite daunting. It's widespread allegations of torture. What I noticed in all the different profiles of the individuals who either were direct victims of torture or uh, witnesses to others being tortured is that there was this very eerie consistency, regardless of which region they were held in or which detention facility. And when I say consistency, it was consistency down to not only the methods of torture that were being inflicted, but also the purpose for that torture, as well as the way in which the torture was being supervised. And I mean by that that a number of the allegations that I received were able to say who was the supervisor, who was carrying out the interrogation and who was torturing as though there was, and in my opinion, this shows that these cases of torture appear to present a deliberate policy of the Russian authorities. I mean, that's a very strong allegation, deliberate policy of the Russian authorities. How were you able to gain your evidence and and verify the information you were given? Look, there's one thing to 
you know, claim that, you know, in the heat of battle that, you know, people step over the line. And that has always been a very poor excuse for torture. And even those cases need to be investigated and the individuals prosecuted. But when one has over 100 allegations that came to my office from a number of different organizations that have very good record in other cases that I've worked on, so there's some validity there to the, to the way they work, the methods they work. They implement the Istanbul Protocol, which is a, a source that documents and investigates corporal integrity of an individual, also psychological trauma. Of course, I can't claim that each and every case would stand out if it went to court, but that's not my role. My role is to turn government's attentions to allegations of torture and to request an investigation. There is a duty to investigate torture under international law. And in quite a number of countries, they also have it explicit in their own domestic legislation. Uh, and so that is kind of where I want, to I want to receive a reply from the government and see what the Russian authorities say in response. Are these alleged actions being perpetrated against just military personnel or civilians and the ages of the of the allegations you've heard? We, does this include children, old people? Um, look, I can't go into too much detail. As I say, the Russian authorities have 60 days in which to reply. And also at that point, my letter will be public. In other words, everyone in the who wants to read it will be able to view the extent of the uh, allegations. Yeah, so the allegations I have were alleged as civilians. There's always a question in an armed conflict whether someone is a civilian or a prisoner of war. Some individuals had past military association uh, with the Ukrainian authorities. And so I have made these allegations more broadly as civilians and prisoners of war, but many were simply individuals who were picked up from their houses, their houses raided. They may have found some support for the Ukrainians. These are in the occupied territories at the, that particular point in time when they were being taken away. And so the questioning also revolved around trying to either obtain strategic or military intelligence or to make people confess that they had carried out certain things, I guess, with the view, and that I don't know, but I guess with the view to perpetrating further harm or putting people on trial in very rudimentary way. Or the broader kind of pattern also seems to show just, you know, making people fearful to hold on to that support for the Ukrainian uh, side and trying to instill fear in the general population. It must be extremely difficult gathering evidence and it must be very easy for a state that you're accusing of, of such or making allegations against to say, well, anybody could say that and just an email or just a, you know, a word of mouth from secondhand party, you, know, we, you can't believe that. The methods you've been able to use in this war are they tried and tested and understood by the international bodies and by the, the, the member states of the United Nations as the best that you could do in these circumstances and have therefore been accepted as, as as close as you could get to reality, to the truth? Look, I think that's a really good question. One of the new angles to the Russia-Ukraine conflict is the fact that there are real-time investigations being carried out. 
And I'm not familiar with too many other conflicts where that is actually being carried out. There is a UN investigative mission that has a, a full staffing that are carrying out their own investigations. The UN Human Rights Monitoring Mission is also in Ukraine. And then, of course, there are a whole range of uh, civil society and other uh, actors. I think one of the things we should be cautious about when there's a later and I should have also mentioned the ICC, the International Criminal Court. One of the things I would be cautious about and would caution those investigators is the potential for double counting, for interviewing the same people over and over again and asserting, extrapolating from that, but actually not being clear as to whether these are double counts. For the allegations I've received, every single individual, I have names, I have dates of birth, I have addresses. So of the cases that I've presented, and in fact, from the larger group, we did uh, submit a sample um, also to protect people's safety and against reprisals. But I think in, in armed conflict, it does present a very complex set of circumstances. I think the authorities in Ukraine, from my discussions with them, are, you know, trying in real time and as fast as possible to follow up. I will be visiting Ukraine hopefully in September. My mission has twice been postponed for escalating security reasons, which is very unfortunate. So I do hope to be able to carry out my own live uh, investigations and kind of uh, double check uh, some of the information I've been sent. But, you know, you're totally right. This is a very unique set of circumstances. The other thing that's very interesting around investigating in times of armed conflict are prisoner swaps. So, of course, one totally understands that prisoner swaps are an ordinary part of armed conflict. It's good that the parties are able to engage, at least on this point, and they are transferring, I understand, on a reasonably regular basis, prisoners. And at the same time, those prisoner swaps will definitely interfere with any later prosecutions of persons identified as having committed torture because they will be out of the jurisdiction. So I think that's also an element that makes future justice for victims quite complex. Thank you. As you mentioned it there, what is your relationship or interaction with the ICC, the International Criminal Court? At this stage, none. I'm independent of them. They are carrying out their investigations and whether at a certain stage I transmit some of the material I have received, I haven't yet determined how we would go about that and whether that would, we'd need to also get the consent of the individuals who have approached uh, my mandate. Now, you said you've given Russia 60 days to respond. When is that date, the date of that, that report? And have you had any, any involvement, any reaction yet from, from Russia, any uh, not unofficial response? The... 60 days runs out in two months from around the 5th of June. I haven't had any early response uh, yet. I have reached out to them, meet them in person, and those meetings haven't happened either. And what's your assessment, if you're able to share with us, how widespread and systemic do you think such alleged activity is from Russian forces? As I've said in the allegation letter, of course, you haven't seen it, but also publicly, the pattern is so consistent 
that it really does appear to me to be deliberate instructions from someone. I'm not saying how high up. I don't know how high up that is, but at least tacit approval for these tactics and at least instructions that they must obtain information and they can do it by whatever means necessary. If they were not under those instructions, we wouldn't be seeing this level of allegations of torture and ill-treatment, in my considered opinion. And have you received any credible allegations of torture undertaken by Ukrainian forces? I haven't received any submitted to my office. I do know that there have been some allegations submitted to other UN entities and also uh, through direct interviews. I think, you know, it's important that all the parties to every conflict are cognizant of their obligations not to carry out torture. Torture is absolutely prohibited. There are just no excuses for torture under any circumstances. This requires really training, awareness, and also non-prosecution if a junior soldier, for example, refuses to obey the directions of a more senior officials. So, no, I haven't yet received any allegations in relation to Ukraine. Uh, on my country visit, I will also, of course, be following up uh, with any Russian prisoners of war that are being held at that time by Ukrainian authorities. I said at the start that Monday is the International Day in support of victims of torture. Can you take us a bit more widely, talk about what's happening in the rest of the world, where the world is regarding torture in and out of conflict. Is it normal? Is it increasing, decreasing? Is this just part of the human condition when hostilities start? And any examples of success? I don't know what sanctions you're able to levy, but any examples where your work and similar work has resulted in a success? Yes, so Monday, the 26th of June, is uh, this really important international day for victims of torture for those of us working in this area. But it's also a reminder, I think, to average citizens in countries that they have this right not to be tortured, that the police, military, security forces have rules that they need to obey and that individuals have the right to be respected and treated with dignity in all their interactions with the authorities. More broadly, there are positive practices and negative practices. I think I'm very disconcerted that according to latest statistics, uh, we have more armed conflicts going on in the world since 1945. And of course, with armed conflicts, there is often a spike in torture cases and perpetration of torture. I think we're at a very worrying period in our global affairs. Multilateral affairs is also far more complicated than it was in the past. There is, even in my discussions at the UN, uh, there are a lot of there's a lot of mudslinging on countries and different sides of conflicts. What I'd like to see is that the International Day on Victims of Torture is a time where countries reflect on their own practices, that they take leadership and ownership when incidents occur, and they put in place proper training procedures. They review their interrogation rules. They keep this all mindful as they have such a powerful position in society vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, your average person. Globally, one thing I am very positive about, there are now 173 states parties to the UN Convention Against Torture. 
the 26th of June date actually was selected because it was the day that the Convention Against Torture entered into force in 1987. It's going to be 40 years next year for when it was adopted. And we are hoping and I'm hoping that the remaining 22 states around the world will sign on to that convention. And the other positive development is that in my last report to the UN Human Rights Council, I counted as best as possible the number of countries worldwide that have an autonomous crime of torture. In other words, a specific crime in the ordinary criminal law of torture and At present, 108 countries worldwide have such a crime. Of course, there are still quite a number that don't, and some are looking to introduce those uh, laws, and some, of course, still don't want those laws on their books. So I'm working with all states in that regard, trying to encourage them to be leaders in this field. And of those states who have signed up to it or have their own autonomous laws, have any of those been subject to these allegations and had anything proved in in recent years. I'm just trying to wonder how, whether this work has teeth. Last year, we counted and there was a six-month gap in uh, my predecessor left six months earlier than I started. Of 72 allegations across 42 countries, there was about a 60-70% response rate. Some countries, of course, as you know, take their human rights obligations very seriously As soon as an allegation letter comes, they will be on the phone. They want to have a conversation about it. They will follow up. They will investigate. Uh, Not always those investigations lead to the result that the person alleging uh, hopes for. But it is a mechanism also where even in the most complicated situations, there may, even if there are no results presently, there may be and I feel like I'm contributing to establishing a historical record for some of those incidents. There are countries that have moved from dictatorship to peace. I think of the Gambia. They've recently ratified the last few years the Convention Against Torture. They have instituted a reconciliation and reparations process, and now they are starting to look at some of the more serious allegations of torture and taking action. It takes time, and I think for victims and survivors, it's a really long road. It's a long road to their own recovery, and justice is part of that. Um, so that's kind of where I'm pushing. I'm, I am an optimist, but of course, every day my email is flooded with the most graphic images. So I have to say that sometimes I'm uh, moving onto the more negative uh, side of things. But I do, I mean, I really encourage governments to not only outwardly project. So not just calling other governments to account. I think the human rights and the UN system as a whole works because it requires internal reflection as well as speaking out about other countries. And if you only do one of those, I think you lose credibility. So everybody needs to have their books in a row. They need to have the right legislation. They need to have a commitment and a willingness to implement the Convention Against Torture. They're public authorities from the police, security, health services, everything that is covered under torture need to know that there's zero tolerance for this and persons will be investigated and held to account. Um, There's a lot of work to do. 
are all five permanent members of the Security Council signatories to the convention? And do you feel supported by the Security Council and the P5 specifically? Interestingly, the Convention Against Torture is one of the conventions that all five Security Council members are party to it. The US, China and Russia and France and the UK. And that's quite unique. I haven't had yet dealings with the Security Council on this. Clearly, allegations of torture do cross their desks. And I would, you know, encourage they should be setting the example. Of course, in today's world, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty problematic what's going on. We've had, you know, it's just so difficult, I think, for, Countries to have the moral authority when they're not cleaning up their own cupboards. The United States needs to investigate and prosecute those involved in torture and setting the policy in Guantanamo Bay. The United Kingdom, now I think there's an avenue for uh, a full investigation and prosecution for individuals involved in the hooded men case in Northern Ireland. You know, we're talking 30 years ago. You know, there are allegations in relation to China with the Uyghurs. They really all need to play their part. They are the five uh, Security Council members. And states do look to them for leadership. And, yeah, I, I mean, I think we're at a pretty difficult period right now and I am hopeful that at some point the peacemakers will step up and uh, we will find uh, solutions to the current rather intractability of international affairs. Now, Dr. Edwards, I'm uh, detecting a slight accent here. If you're from the Antipodes, Australia, perhaps. The recent case of Ben Robert Smith, so Australia's most decorated uh, living war veteran, won the Victoria Cross. In a recent civil case, there were allegations that he had used torture in Afghanistan. That was successful in a civil case, a defamation case. Do you think there was fair process conducted there? And do you think the Australian state should now take any further action? Look, this is a very fascinating case because, as you mentioned, it was a civil defamation lawsuit that he actually brought against a number of uh, publications. And through that process, more and more evidence was presented around the commission of war crimes by Australian troops and by this individual himself. The standard of proof, of course, is lower in a civil uh, litigation than under a criminal prosecution. But of course, the country now, the government is on notice that there are these allegations of torture and the Convention Against Torture requires that where there are allegations of torture, a likelihood of torture, they are required to investigate. They did hold a lengthy independent inquiry, the Brereton Inquiry, on the basis of rumours and information, which has turned out to, to present that quite a number of cases of war crimes were committed by Australian troops in Afghanistan. Regrettably, only one person has so far been charged. I expect and I hope that they will open a full investigation. These were really if proved uh, to the criminal law standard, but certainly proved to the civil law standard, quite horrific acts of murder, belittling and degrading treatment, 
and in some instances potentially torture. So, you know, the Australian public authorities need to step up on that one. And when you say if it can be proved to the criminal law standard, what court are we talking about? Is it only the ICC? Is that the only the only mechanism now? No, not at all. So the civil proceeding standard is on the balance of probabilities. So kind of, is there more than a 51% chance that these occurred? And the judge roundly said that on a, a number of the asserted allegations that they had reached that standard. Of course, criminal prosecution is beyond reasonable doubt, which is a much higher standard. The Australian Prosecution Service is independent and now should be carrying out. There is a crime of torture under Australian law. There's a crime, obviously, of murder uh, as well. There's also the military codes. So they are now, uh, in my view, required to fully investigate this. The International Criminal Court's jurisdiction only steps in uh, should a state fail in its own obligations. So the ICC is meant to be a court of secondary, a secondary venue, essentially. Either a state can refer their own cases because for whatever reason they don't have the capacity or it's too political and they can refer the cases. I can't imagine Australia doing that, although I did see that a Australian senator had made a referral to the ICC, which is also another interesting anomaly. I think what's very interesting is that we are far more attuned to international systems and prosecutions because there have been a number of high-profile cases. And what I'd like to stress is that national authorities need to take up action. We can't rely on these international courts to be doing the work that ordinary governments and ordinary prosecution services should be doing. So I'll be watching that space and making inquiries to see when those investigations are being carried out and to follow up. Just to finish off, if I may, on the international side, where should we look for in the international sphere for best practice? Who is getting this right at the moment? Well, that's a very good question. There are, in terms of you know, responsible policing. There are a number of countries worldwide responsible military. Then there are incidents. As soon as an incident occurs, we need immediate investigation and prosecution. What I find is that every state seems to have some good practices and some problematic practices. So even the countries such as Germany that have recently prosecuted and found guilty individuals who were involved in uh, sexual violence and torture against Yazidi women in the Iraq conflict. At the same time, Germany does not have an autonomous crime of torture. So there are some countries that are prosecuting foreign perpetrators, carrying out crimes in foreign lands against foreign victims, but they don't actually have an equivalent in their domestic law. And likewise, you have countries such as Uganda, that has a world-leading anti-torture statute. Yet 37% of the allegations of any form of human rights violation to their National Human Rights Commission involve torture. It is the most recurrent allegation against the government. So regrettably, you know, countries are trying, but there's still a long way to go. And there's no country that we can hold up as the poster country in the prohibition of torture. Of course, torture is such a broad realm. So in penitentiary care, of course, there are some, there'll be different ones in relation to policing and and 
peaceful assemblies. There'll be others that have very good laws. The best countries have independent inspection, independent investigators, independent bodies. The UK has one of those, but of course we've seen that it doesn't have the perhaps the reach that it needs to have. So I think all countries are a work in progress and uh, much more work needs to be done. Dr. Alice Edwards, thank you so much for talking to The Telegraph. Thanks very much, Dominic. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings you stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload, So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message and you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we're especially interested to hear where you're listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Elliot Lampitt, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.